Now we're back in Acts. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through this incredible book, a narrative of early church history. And a couple of weeks ago, we overviewed Stephen's sermon out of the whole chapter of Acts 7. And now we're going to break it up one section at a time. And so this morning, the title of the sermon is The Spiritual Roots of Abraham. The Spiritual Roots of Abraham. We'll just be looking at Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And so let's read what Luke writes here, and then we'll dive into our time together. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from, it, from the land of the Chaldeans and arrived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Father, we bow our heads before you as our great God and our King. We desire to learn from this new covenant, New Testament message of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith. We desire to look into what he taught to his Jewish audience who hated him, who had accused him of blasphemy. And yet Stephen stood up And he stood firm and he preached these very words. I pray that as we look through these various sections of his sermon for the weeks to come, that you would encourage us, that you would embolden us, that you would cause us to have a deeper appreciation for the roots of our Christian faith, and that you would be glorified in our time together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to start off this morning by talking to you about Abraham. Abraham, or Abram as he was originally called, is the father of the Jewish nation. As Christians, we also see Abraham as one who taught us to live by faith. In addition to this, Muslims attribute Abraham as the father of Ishmael, the leader of so many of the Arab nations, which pretty much are all Muslims. So there are three different world religions. There are Jews, Christians and Muslims who would all trace their lineage back to Abraham. Abraham demonstrates God's goodness. He demonstrates God's love. And his story is a clear picture of what is meant to us today to be an example of what it means to live by faith, what it means to obey God's word, what it means to walk with God. And as Abraham does this, he is pointing us all along to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham's life can essentially be divided into three periods. The first period includes the unknown early years from his birth in Ur and later his move to Haran with his father Terah. 
The second period starts with Abraham's call by Jehovah to go to Canaan, and it includes the adventures that he had there and continues until the events of Genesis 17, where we are told that he was 99 years old, rich and powerful, but with no son. Once again, the Lord appears to him and promises that his progeny will become a great nation. And at this time, God institutes the, the rite of circumcision to mark his people, and he changes Abram's name to Abraham, adding that ha sound from Jehovah. So he changes his name there. And then the third period of Abraham's life, we see the birth of Isaac, we see the death of Sarah, whose name was also changed, and we see the finding of a wife for Isaac from Abram's, Abraham's relatives back in Mesopotamia. Abraham lived to be a ripe old age of 175 years old when he died. And so that's just a little bit of a, a reminder of who we're talking about with this person of Abraham. It's a biographical reminder of Abraham's life. But I also want to take just a couple of minutes, still by way of introduction, and say let's make a few spiritual observations of Abraham as well. In fact, on the PowerPoint, if you can click on that next slide, this isn't in your notes, but just something I wanted you to see here. Let's just look at three, there's many that we could look at, but three life lessons that we can learn from the life of Abraham. Number one. Start moving in faith even when the way is not clear. Boy, that describes Abraham to a T. God shows up to him in Mesopotamia and says, Abraham, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. So he's telling him, I got somewhere for you to go. I'm not telling you exactly where it is or what's going on there, but I need you to go there. And Abraham wanted to go to the promised land. He was still in his father's house, Terah. Terah apparently wanted to go to Haran, which was part of the way to Canaan, but wasn't yet, that wasn't the end goal. And so there are times in your life where you just have to start. You just step out in faith. Others may distract you. They may delay you. But, it, it, but you got to be heading in the right direction. And we appreciate that about the life of Abraham. Keep heading in the right direction. Number two, another life lesson we could learn from Abraham is believe by faith, even when the way isn't very clear. God told Abraham that Sarah was to have a son when Abraham was almost 100 years old and, and Sarah was 90, and nothing about that makes sense. In fact, when it was told the prophecy that they would have a son, Sarah laughed. Didn't make any sense that this older couple, 100 years old, 90 years old, could have a kid. Abraham's well beyond that life-bearing time of his life. And so they, they, uh, they struggled a little bit where Sarah recommended that he take her, her handmaid, Hagar, and then uh, Abraham had a son, Ishmael, and then been fighting ever since. So he didn't do it all perfectly, and yet we know that he was leaning into what it meant to really believe by faith, even when it's not very clear. A third life lesson we could learn from Abraham would be obey by faith, even when the way isn't very clear. In fact, turn with me briefly just to Genesis 22. Got to obey by faith. And so he started. He's heading towards Canaan. He's believing for a child that would be born to him. And now, uh, number three here, obeying by faith. And we see this as Abraham was told to sacrifice his son. And in uh, Genesis chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham. So I just want to make sure you see that part. God tested Abraham. Abraham was never literally going to slay his son and yet he needed to obey God again by faith. And so it's a test. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, 
whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. Don't you love that about Abraham? He's already moved all the way across uh, the, the, the Middle East. He's already uh, had, had to, to trust God about even having a son named Isaac. Now he's been told to take this son to the land of Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. And you would think maybe this would be a time for Abraham to delay. And yet he gets up early. Gets up early the next morning, saddles his donkey, takes all the supplies, and they head again to the place where God will show him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. And so in some of the translations it says, and we will come back to you. So it's inferred there in the Hebrew that we're going to go worship and we're coming back. And I don't know exactly what that looks like or how that's going to happen, but that's what we're doing. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his hand, he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so that both of them went out together. Abraham obeyed fully. Right? He's obeying God exactly like God told him. And then in verse 7, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son, he said. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And I just want us to, to look again at how Abraham obeyed faithfully. God will provide. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. God taught Abraham that lesson with the whole story there about how God provided a ram in the thicket that would take the place of the, of the sacrifice of his son. And in so many ways throughout Abraham's whole life, we just see pointers to Jesus. Obviously, Genesis 22, just such a clear example of how Christ would take our place. And that's what Abraham is teaching throughout his life. God miraculously provided life within Sarah's womb, and God miraculously provided life within Mary's womb. Abraham spent many years coming of age where he was instructed as a young man, but we don't really see him shining, if you will, until a little bit older in his life. And Jesus, in a similar way, had 30 years where he was simply not necessarily on the public scene other than at age 12 at the temple. We have that part in the Bible, but there's not a whole lot of description about Jesus's life for 30 years. And then he comes into his ministry at age 30. Abraham Passed on his, he passed on his influence to Isaac and then to the 12 tribes of Israel who became the patriarchs of the faith. And Jesus passed on his influence to the 12 apostles who became, in a sense, the founding fathers of the church. In Genesis 12, Abraham had to sojourn for a while in Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And in Matthew 2, Jesus was taken to Egypt because there was a spiritual famine in the land. Abraham bowed before Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of the most high God. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is that high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Abraham witnessed God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus warned of God's judgment in the same way of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. 
Jesus is the father of the Christian faith. Abraham was the mediator of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Abraham circumcised the flesh. Jesus circumcises the heart. Abraham pointed to the ram that God provided on Mount Moriah. And Jesus, of course, is the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Get this, on that same mountain... If you go back and study Mount Moriah and where that sacrifice would have been made of Isaac with the ram in that same area, potentially on the same mountain, which later would be where David would buy the threshing floor, which is later where the temple mount itself is built, is all in that same general area. So where uh, Abraham was going to make his sacrifice is where Jesus was sacrificed. Well, no wonder Stephen started his sermon with Abraham. Stephen had been accused of blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the law, blasphemy against the temple. And here in Acts 7, Stephen's defense, here in Stephen's sermon, he's, 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 he's uh, preaching a sermon to convict his hearers for not really following the clear thread of redemption, which should be able to clearly be seen throughout the entire Old Testament up until Christ. And so throughout his message, he's preaching that way, preaching that way, and this indictment of his listeners slowly builds, picking up steam until it reaches a climax here at the end of chapter 7. And he's really seeking to show that the Jews, by rejecting the Messiah, are really rejecting Abraham. They're really rejecting Joseph. They're really rejecting what the patriarchs stood for. They're rejecting the temple. They're rejecting the whole thing. And he's trying to show them that don't be like your fathers. Don't be like those who persecuted the prophets ahead of us. You need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's what Stephen's sermon is all about. Stephen sought to present to them the only one who would ever forgive them for their sins, the only one who could save their souls, the only one who could cleanse their hearts and to, to wash away their iniquity and to make them new. This is the only one that we're talking about, the Lord Jesus. He's the only one who's worthy. He's the only one who was without sin. He's the only one who can save us today and cause us to be born again. It's this person, the God-man, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at three points that Stephen makes as he discusses the spiritual roots of Abraham. First, we're going to see the revelation made to Abraham in verses 1 through 3. Then we'll look at the response given by Abraham in verses 4 through 5. And then in verses 6 through 8, we'll see the result of the promise given to Abraham in verses 6 through 8. So first, let's start with our first point this morning. Number one, the revelation made to Abraham. If you are taking notes this morning, this part of the outline is available for you. And that blank there is the respect given to Stephen's accusers. The respect given to his accusers. Remember, they're accusing him of blasphemy. And the high priest said, verse 1, are these things so? And then he starts off, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Now, even though Stephen's accusers were breathing down his neck, and even though they had accused him of horrible blasphemy, and even though they didn't like him, and they wanted to see him gone, Stephen responded with utmost respect. He called them brothers and fathers. Using the word brothers here shows that Stephen, in some sense, was standing in solidarity with his people. 
While Stephen was one of the first deacons, while the name Stephen is a Greek name, he was Hebrew by origin. He was a Jew. He was a Jew by birth. He was a Jew through and through. And yet he was a completed Jew. Stephen wanted nothing more than his fellow Jews to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Stephen treated them kindly. Stephen greeted them warmly. Stephen greeted them like family. Now, they were not all part of the true spiritual family of God, and yet, uh, because they weren't yet believers in Christ, and yet Stephen still addresses them as his brothers to affirm their common ancestry. And they were all physical sons of Abraham, and so forth. This made them brothers. And Stephen also, there in verse 2, not only called them brothers, but he called them fathers. This is showing respect for them as the leaders of the Jewish people. And Paul uses this same respect when he says on his first missionary journey in Acts 13, verse 17, he says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And so we see regularly them addressing the Jewish people as their brothers and the elderly ones, the older ones, as their fathers. We see Paul address the Jews like this again when he gives his defense when he was arrested there at the Temple Mount in Acts 22. He says in Acts 22:1, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And so here in Acts 7, Stephen is showing a genuine respect for the people, and he wants to identify with them as much as he can so that he can lead them to Jesus. I just love that about Stephen. Partly as we live in a polarized culture, we want to do everything we can to distance ourselves from those who may vote differently than us, think differently than us, uh, live differently than us, and we just live in a polarized country. And not just like the way Stephen, even though they're completely polarized in their theology, I get that, but the idea is like, hey, brothers, let's talk about this. Hey, brothers and fathers, I have something to appeal to you. It's that reminder of the principle of like becoming all things to all men so that you might win some. And that's the idea that Stephen's doing. He's, you, you may disagree with people. They may falsely accuse you. You may be in a heated debate as you're trying to defend the gospel, but you can still be kind, and you can still be loving, and you can still be respectful in your language, and that's something that many of us have lost. Listen, I'm more fired up than I've ever been as a Christian, as a pastor, but I'm not going to become one of those fundamentalists who out in the culture, and I'm, I'm referring to in the style, you know what I'm saying, in the delivery of them chewing out, cussing out, and derating our culture. I just think that we need to be a little bit more kind, have a little bit more tact, have a little bit more respect, and a little bit more appreciation of fellow human beings, others that are created in the image of God. And so I'm pleading to you this morning as we're learning from Stephen that we would have a little kindness, a little grace, a little commonality, and yet we're going to show them where we're completely different when it comes to the heart. You hear what I'm saying? All right, you just needed to hear that. I know you did. All right, so let's move on. This Stephen uh, is, is moving on. I want to talk to you now about the God of glory that Stephen addresses. The God of glory that Stephen addresses. Verse 2, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This God of glory reference is actually a title. It's a title. He's using a specific title, the God of glory. It's only used here and in Psalm 29, verse 3. And in that psalm, Psalm 29, verse 3, David is ascribing to the Lord glory and strength. 
Just listen to the first four verses of Psalm 29. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor, in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. This psalm, Psalm 29, is describing the powerful manifestations of Almighty God. These descriptions of God point to his supremacy and to him as the only true God in comparison to any of the other so-called gods of Israel's pagan neighbors. We're talking here about the Most High God. The God of glory is the most rich and complete description of the Almighty, Holy, Sovereign God. His glory is the composite of all of his attributes. And Moses desired to see the glory of God. We read about that in Exodus 33, where Moses said, please show me your glory. And that ought to be our deepest desire as a Christian. I just want to see you, God. I want to see you in all of your glory. And when Moses prayed that, he said, I will make my goodness, God's speaking to Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord, and I will be gracious to you, and I will be gracious, uh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, nor man shall see me, no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by." Just a reminder, just just kind of upping our understanding of the beauty, the majesty, the power, the glory of God. The glory, again, encompasses all of his attributes. That's who we serve, and that's what Stephen is trying to say to his listeners. Let me talk to you about the God of glory. We're all in agreement that God is filled with glory, and he's filled with holiness, and that's who he is. And we need to lift up our heads O you gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in, Psalm 24 says. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. I can just see Stephen as he's preaching. He knows where he's going. He's going straight to the cross. And he's building his case through Abraham and Joseph and through Moses. But he's going straight to the cross. And he's, guys, get your eyes off your culture. Give your eyes off of your dietary law, off of your civil law, your ceremonial law, your steeped in legalism, and pick up your eyes and look at the God of glory. And that's what Stephen is saying. He's trying to help raise the awareness of his people because they've been lulled into sleep of this lazy, sleepy Judaism that had no gospel, that had no king, that had no God. And if we're not careful, the same thing happens to us today. We become distracted. We become looking at all the temporary things. You can easily go out to dinner with a friend and talk about the vaccine for the whole time. And I would say to you, that makes me want to throw up. I would, say, I would say to you, talk about the God of glory. Talk about something that's eternal. Talk about the gospel. Talk about what he's doing in your life. Talk about how great he is. And don't just succumb to letting those other conversations steal your joy make you frustrated, work you up into a mess, let the gospel work you up into a mess. That's what we're called to do, people. We're representing Jesus. And this is what that Stephen is doing. He's bringing them back. Say, hey, guys, lift your eyes up 
to the God of glory because I've got something to say to you. The next blank, you needed to hear that too, by the way. All right? The next blank is this, the way that Stephen refers to Abraham. So now he's getting into it, the end of verse 2, where he says, that this God of glory, he appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before living in Haran. Verse 3, and he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Stephen here says that God appeared to uh, our father Again, our father, Abraham, commonality, common ground, uh, common ancestry. And again, we, we see this, Stephen's acknowledgement saying, he, he's really saying, hey, we're the same people. Uh, we have the same father, the father of our faith. We're talking about our father, Abraham, who was called originally while he was in Mesopotamia. And if you remember from our overview of the sermon, one of the big points is there was a lot of stuff God was doing outside of Israel. He called Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, because the Israelites were so focused on it's got to be our holy city, our holy faith, just us, no more. And he's saying, no, no, Abraham came in. The, the one who started our faith, he was from Mesopotamia. That's where God first showed up to him. And then he went to Haran. And Stephen is referring to what Genesis eleven thirty one through Genesis 12, 1 says, which is Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and his, uh, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but they came to Haran and they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. And then Genesis 12, 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and of your father's house to the land that I will show you. Well, evidently, God originally called Abraham while he was in Ur, which is a city in Mesopotamia. And in obedience to that call, Abraham departed from Mesopotamia, also called the land of the Chaldeans, and he settled in Haran. Haran was located about 500 miles northwest of Ur, and then Abraham's father, Terah, died. God called Abraham again while he was in Haran to finish that journey, if you will, to the land that I will show you. And this is an, an incredible revelation that God was making to Abraham. God is saying to him, go out from your land. He's saying to him, leave your homeland. He's saying to him, depart from everything that you're familiar with. He's saying, abandon everything that you've ever known. He's saying to him, go out from your land and away from your kindred. And in many ways, Abraham is going out like a missionary. He's stepping out by faith. He's leaving everything that he knows, everything that he's comfortable with. That's what Chris and Ashley Wick did when they went to Slovenia. He left this country to go to another land that he knew nothing about until he started studying about it. That's what Ben Candy did, and he found Tachi. Praise God for that answered prayer. Found Tachi, his beautiful wife, and now they have a baby. But he didn't know anything about Brazil. Look at it. He didn't look Brazilian. And, and then he goes from the land so he can go down and, and where God's called him. In some ways, that's what Abraham's like. He's leaving everything he'd ever known. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, he's taking his wife, his kids, his cattle, his livelihood, and he's moving across the Middle East. This is walking by faith. God wants Abraham to walk by faith. God wants Abraham to walk in obedience. God wants Abraham to trust in him, and he leads Abraham to the land that he will show him. And my friends, this is the kind of faith that we need today. We must be willing to follow God at any cost. 
I mean, did you just see the video of Richard Wormbrand who was going to risk his life to continue to share the gospel in Romania? And we have so many parents today who are like, oh, my little babies, I don't want you to go on the mission field where it might be dangerous. I just think that we've got to be like, you know what, my little babies, I pray that God would raise you up and shoot you out like arrows and you go wherever God's calling you to go and I got your back and I'm praying for you. And of course, we want to be wise about it, how we approach with strategy, but we just can't say, well, we're not sending them anywhere else. We need to be willing to go wherever God calls us. There's too many young men today and young women today that want to get married, buy a house, and get a job, and live the American dream. We have too many people. Santa Clarita is full of people like that. Let's buy a house, let's get a couple of cars, and let's just live the comfortable suburban life. And if we're not careful, we just fall into that. And I just want you to raise your sons and your daughters to say, you know what, maybe God's calling you to the mission field. Maybe God's calling you up and he's calling you out to go take the gospel to the nations. Maybe that's what God's doing in your life. I mean, we just met and hung out with Lisa's sister, Danielle, married to Shannon in Uganda. And it still just blows my mind that they moved to the middle of Kubamatwe, some village with no power, no running water, no, no gospel preaching church to raise up. Uh, believers by preaching the gospel and seeing God. It just blows my mind. We, we have a, another family member, Lisa's other sibling, Michael, as you know, is a missionary in Fiji. And Fiji is the same thing. It's a, it's a third world country outside of the, the beach resorts. And, it, and, and they're just preaching the gospel. They're preaching the gospel to people who are coming in who've never heard the gospel. And this is just what God's calling us to. I, I'm just tired of too many of us just pursuing, I need a good job, a nice house, safe life, that's just not, that's not what we find in here, right? Abraham, get up and go to the land I'll show you. We just heard from Dr. Barrick last week who gave his life together with his wife to go to Bangladesh, a Muslim country. It's not safe there. I mean, he would say he felt safe most of the time, right, Bill? Most of the time he felt safe. But I'm sure there were times where he was putting his life on the line. And this is what God's called us to is people, there, there, there must be some movement to your faith. You must start to, to cover some ground with your faith. you got to be willing to leave some things behind, and he will show you the way. He will direct your path. Again, I'm not saying we all have to get up and go to Timbuktu. Though we did have a missionary who went there. Do you guys know that? You remember we had a missionary from Placer Reed. I got here 2013. I'm like, hey, man, where do you serve? And he's like, I serve in Timbuktu. And I'm like, what? Well, it was Don Carson. You guys remember Don and Jan Carson actually did some mission work in Timbuktu, Africa. This is, this, is, this is what God's calling us to, whether it's that or whether it's being a light here. I get it. You can still be a missionary here. Just don't do it in Idaho. Don't do it in Tennessee. Don't do it in Texas. Where else are we going? Arizona. Do it right here, all right? I'm teasing with some families that are transitioning on, but I'm just saying wherever you go, be a light, Right, wherever you go, it could be here, it could be abroad, but we need to live in this way where I'm going to follow God in obedience. Let's move on. Our second point this morning is this. We see how there's this, there's this uh, Stephen is talking about the spiritual roots of Abraham, the revelation that God made to him. And then number two, the response made by Abraham, verses four and five, your next blank says simply, Abraham went out. Abraham went out. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from um, from there into this land in which you are now living. And so Abraham obeyed. 
Abraham put feet to his faith. Abraham believed in God in his, in his heart, and he obeyed him with his life. And Abraham's obedience was under God's sovereignty, and it, it accomplished God's purposes for his life. And Abraham was the founder of the Hebrew nation, and this relationship he had with God was a, God, uh, was a relationship filled with grace and with faith. And, and God graciously appeared to him and called him out of heathen darkness and into the light of salvation. Abraham responded by faith. Abraham was saved by grace through faith, and not because he was circumcised, kept the law, or worshiped in the temple. All of those things came afterwards. That's part of Stephen's point. Abraham was saved before we had any law, any temple, any Judaism. There was Abraham and God, and God saved him by faith. Abraham believed in God's promises, and it was his God-given faith that saved him. And the point, again, that he's trying to make is the same point that Paul makes later. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 4. Paul uh, puts this into words in Romans 4. If you'll remember, the Jews were completely hung up on salvation being tied to circumcision, tied to keeping the law, tied to worshiping in the temple, tied to keeping the Sabbath. And so Stephen is confronting this by pointing back to Abraham. And Paul makes this argument in Romans 4, look at verse 1, where he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham or our forefather according to the flesh? So he's saying, what did Abraham ever gain by doing something to his flesh? And he's, he's talking about circumcision. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, obedience, circumcision, um, he, was, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Verse 3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the argument's being made, Abraham was not saved by circumcision, the flesh. He's not saved by obedience. That's not how you become a Christian. He was saved by faith. And as he had faith, God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith in God. Skip down to Romans 4 verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So there's the point. Abraham was a Christian long before he was circumcised. Some of the Jews were saying, oh, if you're not circumcised, you must be a heathen because you're a Gentile and you're not under the covenant of Abraham, therefore you're out. And Stephen is trying to say, wait a second. Abraham was saved before he was ever circumcised. You can't say they're out. It's not about the outer man. It's about the inner man. It's not about your works. It's about your faith. In fact, look down now at Romans 4, 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So again, it's just all saying circumcision or not, if you are circumcised, then you better walk by faith because just because you're circumcised as a Jew doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Not all of those who are Israel are Israel. 
So the idea here is he's saying it's like, it's about faith, people. It's about having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's who Abraham's whole life, his whole example, everything that he did was to point to Christ. So these verses are saying that Abraham was the father of all who believe. The imputed righteousness of Christ are counted is counted to all who believe in the gospel. And if we are, are been saved, it's only by faith in Christ. And if we are saved, then we should be walking in the footsteps of Abraham. And so Stephen's point to the Jews in Acts 7 is that if you have, you know, he's saying to them, basically, you've put the cart before the horse. You're trying to get all this other stuff lined up to show that you're a good Jew where your heart's not even right. You're not, you're not having faith. If you're having faith, then you would believe like Abraham believed. You would be made righteous, and that would be all through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You should be walking in obedience to God's word. And so this is how Abraham lived. He lived by faith, and he also lived on, your next blank, he lived on a promise. He lived on a promise, verse 5, back to Acts 7, verse 5. It says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. What is interesting about verse 5 is that while God called Abraham to the promised land, according to verse 5, he actually didn't inherit it. You see that there in verse 5? Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. So God called Abraham to the promised land, and yet he had no inheritance in it. That's right, Abraham didn't receive any land in Israel. Even he had to buy the burial plot for he and his wife, Sarah. He didn't even have, according to verse 5, he didn't even have a foot's length. He didn't even have a footstep there in Israel. You say, but I thought the Abrahamic covenant was all about land and seed and blessing. And I would say it was. But apparently, according to Stephen, Abraham actually never received any land. The promise was made to Abraham, and the promise that was made to Abraham was to be ultimately fulfilled by his descendants. Hebrews 11:9 says it this way: "By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise." And so we have a little bit, again, of a confusing thing here. How are we to understand that while some verses say that the land was given to Abraham and his descendants, this verse is saying he didn't own any of the land. How are we to understand that? I think it would be fair to say that neither Abraham nor Isaac nor Jacob were able to settle there permanently. Abraham first went there in faith, believing in a promise of possession that would not be fulfilled for many generations beyond his lifetime. So I guess what I'm saying is partial fulfillment to Abraham, permanent fulfillment is still yet in the future. And I'm getting this all from Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 13, 15, all these verses that I listed for you. It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, Genesis 12, 7, he appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Genesis 13, 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So the gift to Abraham is understood to be temporary, 
but the gift to your offspring is going to be forever. Listen to Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Genesis 17, 8. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. Again, Abraham lived in the land But according to verse 5, he did not possess it in the same way that his offspring would. And speaking of offspring, that's another problem because here in verse 5, he's saying, oh, you don't even have a child. I'm going to promise this to you and your offspring, but the problem is at this point, Abraham had no child. But you know what? God promised him. He promised him that you will have a child. And I already read to you a little bit about Genesis chapter 22. What I'm saying is Abraham lived by faith. And he had to continue to live by faith, and he had to live by the promises that God made to him, even though sometimes it didn't make total sense. And what kind of promises are you living on today that God has given? Did you know that in the Bible, there's no less than 7,000, according to one commentator, 7,147 promises that God made to man in the Bible? That's a lot of promises, over 7,000 promises that could be found in general from God to man in the Bible. Let me just give you 15 to encourage you this morning, and somebody say, thank you for not giving us 7,000. Right. <laughs> just 15. There's some familiar ones to us. Here's some promises that God made to us. God promises to be faithful in every situation. God promises to be kind and compassionate to you no matter what. God promises that he has designed you for a purpose. God promises you that he loves you deeply even when you're struggling with sin. God promises to give you power from on high. God promises that in his presence you will find fullness of joy. God promises to fill your heart to overflowing with hope. God promises to strengthen you and to help you always. God promises to give you wisdom and insight. God promises you an abundant life in Jesus. God promises to rescue you from disaster and to give you a future and a hope that might be eternally. The rescue there might be eternally. And then last, God promises that he can be trusted and God promises to never break a promise. It's an incredible encouragement that God is giving to Abraham that we see throughout the Bible that God gives to us today so that we can live according to the promises of God. Do you live by the promises of God or do you live by your feelings or what you see? And we're looking to Abraham and say, man, he had this incredible faith and these incredible promises and he just lived his life even though all these things weren't fulfilled even in his lifetime. Well, we've seen the revelation made to Abraham. We've seen the response made by Abraham. Let's look at number three, the result of the promise given to Abraham. Your next blank says God's omniscience. God's omniscience, verse six. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. God's omniscience. This means that God is all-knowing. He didn't say to Abraham, it's going to be a piece of cake, Abraham. You just follow me, and you're going to live the high life with no challenge, no trial, no difficulty. He says, no, no, I'm going to tell you because I'm omniscient. I know everything. God knows the future. 
because he ordains all things. And God does so for his glory and for our good. And Stephen is talking about how Israel, the nation, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. And then how they would be enslaved, as we know, to Egypt for four hundred years. And so Stephen is referring to Genesis 15 verses 13 through 14 where that's exactly what it says. This, this happened exactly like God said it would. And then God raised up Moses to deliver his people and after 10 plagues were placed against Egypt, Pharaoh bowed to God's command to let my people go. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Psalm 139, verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Psalm 147, verse 4, he determines the number of the stars, and he gives them all their names. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And what a comfort to know that God knows it all. He knows everything. And he also has power over it all. Our next verse, verse 7, talks a little bit about God's omnipotence, his omnipotence. So he's telling him what's going to happen because he's an omniscient God. And then verse 7, he's an omnipotent God, even though they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Verse 7 says, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. God is omnipotent. This means that he's all-powerful. God judged the most powerful nation on the earth at the time with those 10 plagues, and then by wiping out their entire army in the Red Sea, there is no God like our God who spoke the universe into existence, who sets up kingdoms and takes them down, who effortlessly brings about all things in accordance with his will. God told Moses about what he would do to Egypt beforehand, Exodus 3.12. But he said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then God did the same thing to Babylon that he did to Egypt. Uh, years later, Babylon was the world power. God destroyed Babylon. We're just saying that God can do all things. He's omnipotent. I know, Job said, Job 42.2, I, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jesus said on the omnipotence of God in Mark 10.27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And it's talking about salvation but it certainly lends itself into everything is possible with God. And we have access to the same omnipotent God who still is all-powerful today, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. We serve an all-powerful God. We need to be asking him to do mighty things. We need to be asking him regularly for the salvation of our friends and our family, for changes to happen in our nation, for God to do incredible work in us and through us all for his glory. And I just feel like sometimes our prayers are so small and so minuscule. We honor God with the size of our request. 
We ought to be praying for revival. We ought to be praying for salvation. We ought to be praying for God to do mighty things as we're being reminded of what he's done all along. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. And then third, we could say here, we see God's omnibenevolence. His omnibenevolence in verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. To be omnibenevolent means that God is always and completely good. God was good to Abraham when he made him a promise to give Israel, uh, to give the, the land of Israel, to, uh, uh, to give him the land of Israel, and then additionally land, seed, and blessing. Again, that promise that, that God gave to him was partially fulfilled to Abraham, and his descendants will be permanently fulfilling the land, I believe, in the millennial kingdom. So that permanent possession is a reference to, I believe, the millennial kingdom. The seed is a reference, of course, to that offspring that would come from, uh, from Abraham eventually to the Messiah. That seed would be the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. And the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is that eternal salvation for all who would repent and believe in Jesus. And so we really see God's omnibenevolence on display here. The, the validation or mark of this Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. That's what verse 8 is talking about. Physical circumcision marked God's covenant people of Israel. Today, all believers are marked by having their hearts circumcised through repentance and faith. So they were marked externally in the Old Testament. In the, in the New Testament, we're marked internally. When somebody's a born-again Christian and they've repented, God places his mark on them by giving them a new heart, by changing their life. It's like the light is off. You see people, family, friends, maybe your kids, they don't know the gospel. They don't know Christ. And it's like they're just walking around in the darkness. And then all of a sudden, God saves somebody by his grace. And it's as if the light comes on because through repentance and faith, they have new life a new countenance, a new motivation to live life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, all believers are marked again by having their hearts circumcised through repentance and faith. God kept his promise to Abraham by giving him Isaac miraculously. God keeps his promise to his people by giving Jesus, who was also born miraculously. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs or the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus chose 12 apostles to carry out the promise of salvation for all who repent and believe in him. The Abrahamic covenant was not only for the Israelites, but for all who believe in Jesus today. And so to summarize Stephen's point in this first part of his sermon about Abraham was just simply this. Abraham was from outside of Israel but came to Israel from Mesopotamia. Even though he came from a pagan country, he had become the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham believed by faith, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Therefore, Abraham was saved by grace through faith, and not, not because he was circumcised, or that he kept the law, or that he worshipped at a temple. There was none, right? The Jews greatly prided themselves in being the children of Abraham. But Stephen wanted them to greatly pride themselves in being the children of God. 
That's basically what he's saying. Quit talking back to Abraham. Abraham's pointing to God and the gospel, what you want to be known as, as a child of God. In a sense, what he's saying is he wanted the Jews to know that God has no grandchildren. Heard that phrase before? God has no grandchildren. I was talking to someone recently, and that's part of their testimony. Someone told this young man this, which means basically just because your mama's a Christian and your daddy's a Christian and you were raised in church and you know Christian things doesn't mean you belong to God. You have to become a child of God. And the only way that you can become a child of God is this morning, on this day, that by faith you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it matter if you've been baptized in the past? Does it matter what kind of heritage you have? Does it matter if you're at the master's university? Does it matter? You could have been at Awana your whole life. And God's saying, you still got to come out. You got to come out of darkness. You got to come to light. What matters is what's in your heart. Do you this morning believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you this morning repented of your sin? There's got to be a turn. There's got to be a mark. There's got to be a difference about a young man or a young woman or an older man or an older woman who's met Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, you bow before him and you say, you know what? I don't care about all that other temporal stuff anymore. All I want to do is follow him. I I want him. I want all that he's got for me. And I'll follow him anywhere. And if that's not your life, then you just got to start asking questions. Do you really know your creator? Do you really know him? Are you fervently following him? Are you blown away every day that you get to get up and say, God, you've given me another day, and I just get to worship you. Help me to follow you faithfully today. And if that's not you this morning, and you want to have that kind of vibrant, joy-filled power that comes through the gospel in your life, then as we close in prayer here after we do communion, we'll have a few people available by this back door. They would love to talk to you. They'd love to share with you how you can become a child of God because God has no grandchildren. If you're here and you're already a believer and you're just stirred up because you just love studying God's word, I hope it changes you today. I hope that it helps you live out your faith with more gusto today, being willing to follow God anywhere God's calling you because we all in Christ have spiritual roots tied to Abraham. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for getting us here and getting us up this morning, giving us some extra rest with the daylight saving time and just allowing us to worship this morning through song. My heart's been stirred as we've been able to sing and to, 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 to lift our voices to heaven. And as we prepare our hearts now even for communion to take part in the Lord's table, we're praying, God, that you would allow us to just really get right with you. Lord, there's too much going on in this world and there's too much going on in our lives for us just to sit back when it comes to spiritual things and to coast or to get sleepy, to, to have hearts that are, that are dull. And so I pray that this morning you would use the, 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 the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, in a way this morning that would just stir us up. We love looking back in the Old Testament like we've seen this morning. We love looking at how those things all point to Christ We love the fact that you love us so much that you sent your son, your one and only son, to to die on the cross for us and to be our substitute, to be our sacrifice, that we could, too, become children of God by repenting, by believing, by looking to you. You you do the work, God, sovereignly, by grace in our hearts, but we want to respond to that work even this morning. And so as we think about sharing together in the fellowship of the Lord's table 
As we sing a couple of verses just to get our hearts right and ready, God, I pray that you would be exalted in our hearts as we prepare this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.